Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Each week I have the privilege of sitting in this chair in the studio, being able to interview some of the world's most influential thought leaders, whether they are book authors or business titans or CEOs, or sometimes they're people that are not household names, people that have paid the price in terms of doing some research or perhaps discovering something or surviving some type of trauma or experience. And each week we do our best to shine the Franklin Covey platform and spotlight on them because one of our co-founders, main tenants in life, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, was this idea of having an abundance mentality to where although Franklin Covey has enormous expertise on helping you become great leaders and building great engaged cultures, we believe we have a lot to learn from similar minds around the world and why today we have our guest, Amy Gallo. She is the author of the new book, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Including Me. And I mean, including difficult people. Amy Gallo, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Great, Amy, it's great to have you here. You know, we have uh, 52 weeks a year that we're able to shine our spotlight on someone either in our firm or in our broader family or perhaps someone we don't even know. And several weeks ago, I saw you on several different podcasts and thought, you know, that's a great topic. But it's interesting, Mm -hmm. the reason why I invited you on is a little bit less about the name of your book and a little more about how I think we spend so much of our time trying to figure out how to deal with other people. We rarely try to figure out, gosh, how should they deal with us? Like, what's it like to work with us? We're always studying other people when, in fact, we probably should study ourselves more. So today in our conversation, I want to spend as much time about teaching people how to deal with other types of people, but also helping build everyone's self-awareness on, gosh, what's it like to work with you? Which of these are you? Because it isn't just everybody else that's the problem out there. I mean, it's also us as well, too. So today we're going to talk about a series of archetypes that you have done immense scholarly research around helping us understand why and what and how. Um, But you also are mindful to talk about how far labels should go, right? As a researcher and as an expert on this, we want to talk about as well. Would you take a few moments and maybe reintroduce yourself to our global audience, to all of our listeners and viewers on who you are, your background, your academic and professional uh, journey and why you came to write this book, Getting Along? So I am a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review and the co-host of the Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast. I'm also the author of the book we're talking about today, as well as a previous book called The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. And I have been in my role as an editor and author researching topics around conflict, difficult conversations, communication for over the last decade. I came to this work because I actually worked as a management consultant earlier in my career in a firm that really focused on strategy and organization. And what I realized, and I think a lot of people have have had this realization, was you could have the best strategy. You could have the most talented people. You could even have excellent execution of that strategy. But whether or not you are successful will ultimately depend on how people interact. And I actually remember this sitting in this one you know, day-long strategy retreat with an organization and walking out afterwards and thinking, that's not going to work. 
And not because it wasn't well done, because they hadn't thought through every detail, but because the people in the room did not get along. They did not like one another and they did not respect one another. And it was clear that, that it was unlikely to, fit, to succeed simply because of that way that they interacted. So Amy, I want to dive right into the different archetypes of, of getting along with other people, including difficult people. But let's revisit this topic that you share a passion with me about, which is that the problem isn't always out there. Dr. Covey used to say, when you believe the problem is out there, therein lies the faulty thinking. Uh, talk about how important it is for readers of this book and listeners and viewers of today's interview, not just to be thinking about all of their colleagues or spouses or ex-spouses or neighbors or in-laws or leaders that line up with these different types, but also mm -hmm. the fact that everyone listening to these different types today is being viewed that way by somebody else. Let's make sure that the takeaway from this conversation is less how to deal with other people, but also how to make it easier to deal with you. Yeah. And I have to tell you, this was one of the surprising things when the book came out, how many people reached out to me on social media, sent me a text if they were a friend, sent me an email that said, I'm reading this book and I'm realizing I'm this archetype. What should I do? Right. And I did, I have to say, I didn't give people enough credit thinking they would have the self-awareness, but that is one of the things I really try to pay attention to in the book is how easy it is for many of us to fall into these archetypes, myself included. And because of that, how important it is to be careful not to use these archetypes as dismissive labels, right? You don't want to tell yourself, oh, this person is a passive aggressive jerk and therefore I don't have to deal with them, right? Or that the problem is all them, right? It has nothing to do with me. In any dynamic, it takes two to tango and there are going to be interpersonal interactions in which you need to own your part, no matter how difficult the other person is being. So I use the archetypes as a way to both encourage um, you to take action, you know, evidence-based tactics that you can use to deal with that specific pattern of behavior, but also so that you can see yourself in some of this. And ideally, as you point out, be able to really compensate for some of the ways in which you might be hurting others that you work with. Beautifully said. I want to make sure we keep the attention not just on the other people, but on the people that are listening to this podcast. And when I yeah. say other people, I mean me. So let's talk about, <laughs> there are eight different types of people that you identify in the book. I'm going to read mm -hmm. a quick description of them. And then you're sure. going to talk about how to deal with them in the hopes that everybody here has some introspection. We're going to spend about three minutes on each of these. Speed round because I want yes. to save room to talk about, so what are some ways to get along with anyone? So they are in order, one, the insecure boss, number two, the pessimist, number three, the victim, number four, the passive aggressive peer, number five, the know-it-all, number six, the tormentor, seven, the biased coworker, and eight, the political operator. Three minutes on each, yeah. speed round stops now. Number one, the <laughs> insecure boss. I'm gonna read the description from your book and you're gonna give us some genius insight in under two minutes. The insecure boss, you call this person being overly concerned about what others think of them. Check, suffering from chronic inability to make a decision even when the choice has little consequence. Ah, no check. Frequently changing the direction of a project or meeting, especially the suggestion of someone in power. Taking opportunities to highlight their expertise or credentials, especially when it's not necessary to do so. Attempting to control everything about a team or project, including when and where and even how people accomplish their work. Check, check, 
quadruple check. Requiring that every decision and detail have their approval, you get the point. Talk about how to deal with the insecure boss. Yeah, so one quick caveat about the speed round. I'm gonna share one or two tactics for each one. Obviously, there are many more tactics in the book. I don't want people to think these are the only ways to deal with these folks. So, okay, insecure boss. First, help them feel more secure. Now, it's not your job to undo years of insecurity or years of trauma or bad parenting or whatever's led to them to feeling not confident. But the more you can make them feel safe, either align yourself with them, make sure they don't feel threatened by you, help them achieve their goals, the more likely they are to tone down all of those behaviors you just listed. So that's one really important thing to think about. Now, that will be the last thing you want to do because this person is making your life miserable. So you're not going to want to think about, well, how do I flatter them or build up their ego? But remember, this is not about doing this for them, this is about doing it for you. Because the more secure, more confident they feel, the more likely they're gonna treat you fairly and stop some of those behaviors. There's one other tactic I wanna share that's really been shown in research to work specifically around people who, what they call abusive supervisors, which is that changing the balance of power. Now you're not going to become their boss, although who knows, who knows maybe that will happen. But what you can do is show that they need you. Right? Show that you have a skill that they don't have or a piece of knowledge that they don't have. Anything that can show them that you actually are so valuable to them that they better treat you well can help, again, change that dynamic. Amy, after being in this industry for 30 years, I would argue this describes everyone. I think everyone is kind of making it up <laughs> as they move along, whether you're the CFO or the CEO. Uh, I, I believe everyone is making it up as they go along. And to the degree our listeners and viewers are showing some remarkable self-awareness today, if this is describing someone and thinking, you know what, that's kind of who I am. I've seen myself here and I'm a fairly confident person. What advice mm -hmm. would you give people if they think, gosh, that kind of describes me? Instead of having mm -hmm. their employees have to lead up, what would you have the insecure boss actually do differently starting this afternoon? Well, number one, if you feel insecure, if you feel you have imposter syndrome, you are not alone. I cite a lot of data in that chapter that shows people, as they get more senior in organizations, actually tend to feel more insecure. And that can be really surprising for folks because they think, well, I've got the title, I've got the salary, I've got the you know, reputation. Why am I feeling badly? So one, just accept that that's a normal part of sometimes excelling in your, in your career, and it's okay. I think the second thing you really want to do is think about what are ways can I, that I can demonstrate trust in my people? So you may believe you trust them, but then you're undermining that by micromanaging or checking up on them or preventing them from interacting with other people in the organization. But what are some concrete ways that you can show you have trust in them? And by extending that trust, allowing them to then succeed, you may then learn, un, learn to undo some of those behaviors because you've now shown, oh, they can do it. They don't need me as much I might, as I might have convinced myself in my head that they do. Maybe it's because I've read a few books in my life, but I read this book through the lens not of anybody else. I kept bringing myself back to, okay, so how am I the insecure boss? How am I yeah. the pessimist? When am I the victim? Not that I'm all these things all the time and I don't take the burden of life on, for everyone, but it really helped me to think, okay, so what part of this have I represented or model or, 
or symbolize mm. what can I do differently. Let's talk about archetype number two. You call it the pessimist. The description is complaining about meeting senior leadership, other colleagues, anything and everything. You know, I've seen myself there and I'm a fairly contagiously positive person. Proclaiming that a new initiative or project is doomed to fail. Check. Adapting a, we've already tried that, and it failed mentality. Check. Immediately pointing out the risks of a tactic or strategy. Finding something negative to say, even when the news or meeting is mostly positive. You know, I think I'm a fairly positive person, but as a member of the former executive team here, I could find myself identifying with me these, either because I was in a funk or I was burnt out, not because I was a pessimistic person. I'm a fairly optimistic person. But I found that certain phases of my life, I was identifying with this more than otherwise. Talk about dealing with pessimists. Yeah. The, one of the big risks with pessimism is to try to counter it with optimism, with mm. positivity, right? And when someone says, for whatever reason, like you said, they're in a funk or it's just sort of a natural inclination of theirs to point out the risks, when they say this isn't going to work and you say, yes, it is, right? You've immediately set up this tug of war where they're po they're, you're positive, they're negative. You're an optimist, they're a pessimist. And they're just going to dig deeper into that. So avoid that polarization by granting them their premise, right? You might say something like, I see what you're saying about why this won't work. And part of me agrees, but a part of me thinks it's going to succeed too. Let's try to rectify those two viewpoints, right? So try to engage them in the problem solving as opposed to trying to show them that they're wrong all the time. The other thing you can do with a pessimist is because they are very good at pointing out the risks is give them that formal role to play. So ask them, say, you know, you're really good at pointing out the downsides about seeing things that we may not be seeing. So when we're in these discussions about planning for the future, laying out the project plan, can you play the role of devil's advocate and really point out for us what we might be missing, right? Then you give them something positive to do with that negative attitude. Oh, come on. That's like feeding the bear. Come on. <laughs> okay, hold on. I, I'm going to role play yeah. this with one of my producers. I always play the optimist <laughs> and he plays the pessimist. So let's, okay. I'm, I'm kidding uh, about the role play. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I've I tried, was ready. I was ready to do it. I have tried this because the more you try to kill them with optimism, it doesn't work. They're not going to change their point of view. But I've also found, I have worked with, uh, not currently, but I have worked with contrarians. Mm -hmm. What I have found with a lot of contrarians, it becomes so deeply ingrained in their b mind system, their belief strategy, their behavior, their personality, they don't see that it's their, it's their approach to everything. They're not usually always negative people. They just have built some value or some security around being the contrarian. You called it devil's advocate. And I, I don't know what the right way, I don't know what the right way to deal with that person is because I don't that I want to, it doesn't work to be the opposite. Yep. And I haven't found it's worked to feed them because when you're a contrarian, you're often a contrarian. What would you advise to people like me that are working with contrarians that don't want to feed them? What's the yeah. best way to say, hey, do you always have to be the contrarian? Is it always the opposite of my point of view? Is there no middle ground? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I think... The nice thing about that devil's advocate role is you're giving them a, a, a space in which to do it, right? So that you're allowing some of it out in the constraint of here's the structure we've agreed on, as opposed to the like, everything's negative, everything's negative. Now, the contrarian who you have to remember, there's research that shows that 
being a cynic actually affords you more power. We actually give more power to people who have a negative point of view or point well, of out something. because they're never yeah. responsible. When the project fails yeah. or you miss <laughs> the budget, they have no responsibility because yeah. they said from the beginning, oh, this won't work. Yeah. Well, and also if, they, if their view Lame. is counter to what the group thinks, right, then it's then it's we see it as more valuable right agreeing with the group doesn't have a lot of value because your your opinion gets gets you know diversified among all, everyone in the room but having that one person stick out we're like oh wait we got to really pay attention to that now i think the way to say can you please stop being contrarian is you can be direct and say you know i feel like when i bring points up you you often disagree and i'm curious what's going on with that right sort of ask what's what's behind it that will help raise their awareness, but then also say, I'd love for you to tell me where you agree and where you disagree, because I think you probably have both pieces of it. And I'd love to hear more about where our views might be overlapping, right? Actually encourage them to lean into some of the agreement. And, and it won't, I have to tell you, probably will not work right away. And it may not work all the time. But again, you've put them on notice that you're paying attention, that you're that the contrarian point of view or the pessimistic point of view isn't working for you and you want them to do something different. See, perhaps this is why you write for the Harvard Business Review and I don't, because what I would say is, why are you always a contrarian every single <laughs> time? Okay, so let's go to the best chapter in the entire book, which I loved, which is the victim, because mm. this is not me, I hope, in that I generally take pretty fierce responsibility for my share in my actions but I've worked with a lot of people that play this role. The victim, feeling sorry for themselves and expecting others to do the same. Pity party. Mm. Evading responsibility for things that go wrong and placing blame on other people or external factors. Pushing back on constructive feedback with excuses why they can't be at fault. Dragging others down with complaining and a woe is me attitude. Wallowing in negative feelings. Forecasting failure, particularly for themselves, not me, Talk about how to deal with what is the best chapter in the book, The Victim. I love that you think this is the best chapter in the book. No one who's ever interviewed me about the book has loved this one that, as much as well, you do. I, I so, have spoken, so let it be written. <laughs> there you go. So the victim is a flavor of the pessimist, as you can tell from that description, right? They, they also think everything's going to go wrong, but they think it's going to go wrong to them. So they're really suffering from a lack of agency. And so not only... Do you not want to do all the things you wouldn't do with a pessimist, right, of trying to shower them with positive thoughts of like, oh, no, don't worry, that won't happen. Oh, you're no, no, no. It's, but you also want to help them figure out how they can take action. So a response to a victim when, well, this is never going to work and or I'm going to be blamed for this or I get blamed for everything is to ask questions that encourage them to have agency over the outcome, right? So even hypothetical ones like, huh, well, if you were in charge, if there were no fear of consequences, what would you actually do to change this? Or, you know, that's one way to view it. How, if you were feeling sort of more powerful or you were feeling like you owned this, how would you view it differently? Anything that pushes them into the role of I'm in charge will help get them out of that victim mentality. Again, may not work on the first try, but you keep sort of pushing that in a way, not in a in an aggressive way, but just keep making clear, I see what's happening here. I want you to see this differently, and I want you to engage in these ideas in a different way. So, Amy, let's talk more about this one, because a common theme amongst all people that I interview 
is these smart authors and thought leaders like yourself that talk about a victim mentality and a victim paradigm. Mm-hmm. I've yet in my life to ever meet a human being that has ever uttered the phrase, you know, I'm a victim. Or I I have a victim paradigm. No one admits this. No one ever admits they're jealous. No one ever admits they're a gossip. No one ever admits that they are insecure. No one ever calls themselves a victim. Now they might, you know, in in like the legal sense, but how do you remind everyone right now to stop thinking about everybody else that they work with and think about how they themselves also play the victim? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it is hard. It's hard to, and I think looking at those common behaviors that you listed at the beginning is, is really think about those. So, so rather than thinking, oh, I play the victim. Oh yeah, that's what I do that every day. I wasn't great, but do I, do I actually do some of the things that you just listed before, right? Do I sometimes blame others when things go wrong on a project, right? Do I sometimes refuse to take responsibility for my part in things. And and it's not easy to admit those things. So sometimes you also have to go to some really trusted colleagues and ask, you know, what how do you see this, right? I'm I'm a little bit concerned I might be doing x y and z. Do you have any feedback for me around that? And and I think it'd be an interesting exercise to even hand someone this book and say, "I know I'm doing some of these things. Which of these do you think I fall into?" Because that could be incredibly helpful feedback, especially as a leader or someone empowered in an organization where you're probably not getting as honest and direct feedback as you'd like to really give people the language to point out the ways in which you are either playing the victim or active, pa- acting passive aggressively could be really helpful to you. Similarly, I've never heard someone say, you know, my approach to things is to be passive aggressive. So let's talk about right. archetype number four, the passive aggressive peer, deliberately Mm -hmm. ignoring deadlines after they've agreed to meet them, promising to send an email that never arrives, actually rudely, acting rudely toward you and denying there's anything wrong when you confront them, claiming, oh, it's all in your head or I have no idea what you're talking about, displaying body language that projects anger or sullenness, but insisting they're fine, my oldest son, implying that they aren't happy with your work, but refusing to come out and say so and give you direct feedback, twisting your words in a disagreement, so it seems like you're the one who's in the wrong. My wife would say me. Talk about how best to work with the passive-aggressive peer. So passive-aggressive behavior, like you said, no one goes home from work and says, wow, I was so passive-aggressive today, right? No one thinks that. They might think, oh, I was being petty, or it's not safe there to say exactly what I think, or they don't really care about what I think and feel. So remember that it's motivated by fears, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of conflict. If you can create an environment in which those fears are assuaged, you're likely to reduce some of that passive aggression. Now, that's a long-term project, right, is trying to create that environment. In the short term, I think what you can do is really focus on the underlying message, because oftentimes wrapped up in that snarky comment or that refusal to, to do something they committed to do, there's an underlying message, either I don't agree with the strategy or I don't think that, you know, what you said has value. And if you can try to really understand what is it they're saying underneath that behavior and then do some hypothesis testing, right, of, of saying, you know, I say I, I notice that you're saying you're fine, but I'm, I'm picking up something else. Could it be that you're frustrated with the way that meeting wrapped up? Um, 
And they may again deny it, say, no, I'm fine. But at least it gives them some indication that you're paying attention and that you're interested and curious about their actual thoughts and feelings and re-emphasize that you want to hear what they have to say, even if it goes counter to what you thought, think, and believe. Because their chances are they're feeling, you know, insecure, uh, unsure, afraid. The more you can show that you're really interested in what they think and feel, the more they might be able to get over those feelings to be more direct and straightforward. Amy, for the sake of time, let's skip the next archetype, the know-it-all. Okay. I'm kidding. I just wanted to avoid any self-incrimination. <laughs> so the next one is the know-it-all. Here we go, people. Displaying a my way or the highway attitude, monopolizing conversations, check. Refusing to be interrupted and talking over others, triple check. Positioning their own ideas as superior. I have PSPD, PTSD. <laughs> Refusing to listen or heed criticism, speaking in a condescending tone, explaining things that others already understand. Wait, are these notes from my therapist? Stealing or not sharing credit for group successes, jumping into conversations, uninvited. Thanks a lot, Amy. Talk about the know-it-all. I'm, I'm laughing so hard because this is a chapter I wrote, like, squinting at my screen and being, because I am, it's the archetype I identify with most in all of those behaviors as you're oh, listening. Good, good. This chapter is about yeah. you, not about me. Okay, yes, please continue. That's correct. Thank you. Scott, Thank you. please. I'm much more of a know-it-all than you, I'm pretty sure. It's not possible. And it's, so this is one, um, I'm really working hard on, on how, how I display these behaviors. And, and I think it's, Oh, it's just, it's incredibly difficult, especially when you are in an expert position where you do have knowledge, where you are senior in an organization. Maybe you have decades of experience in something. It's really hard not to fall into this archetype. But the damage of pretending like you know everything and no one else knows anything is so intense. It, you really want to stay out of this as much as you can. Now, if you are the poor people who are working with you and me and need to know how to deal with a know-it-all, a couple things. One of the hallmark behaviors, in, and this is one I, I've been guilty of, is proclaiming things we don't necessarily have reason to believe. So one of the important things is to ask a know-it-all when they do proclaim claim something, like our customers will never go for that, or um, that project's, you know, that project is has never been um, set up for success. It's like, oh, you know, that's interesting. You think that. What's behind that? What facts or data do you have? And they might, again, continue to bluster, but you've shown them that you're paying attention, that you want to have a conversation that's based on facts and data, not their overconfidence, which is what really what, what they're doing. So I think for, for the know-it-all, that's one of the most important things is to, is to just engage them in, how do you know that? I see it differently. Let's talk about our assumptions. Let's let's see how we came to these conclusions. I think if you manage someone who's a know-it-all, you also need to help them see the consequences of that behavior. Because oftentimes we express these opinions with you know certainty um, and with confidence because we want people to see us as an expert. We want people to appreciate our knowledge, but we end up doing the exact opposite. They end up finding us, you know, ignorant or blustery and, and just, you know, not the valid expert we wanted. So you have to help these people realize that 
their behavior is actually doing the exact opposite. It's having the exact opposite impact that they want to have. Amy, we have a problem. Our production team just held up a sign that said five for five and they walked out of the studios. (laughs) (laughs) Wish us luck. Okay, hold on for this one. Six for six, the tormentor. Oh gosh, this is this is my least favorite. I'll be honest, this is my least They're favorite. My least favorite, accusing <laughs> you directly or indirectly of not being committed enough to work, setting near impossible standards, assigning you needless or inappropriate busy work or what academics called illegitimate tasks, proudly sharing the sacrifices they've made in their career and believing you should do similar ones. Welcome to my parenting style. Putting down your accomplishments, especially in comparison with theirs. I worked for this person. Denying time off or flexibility for non-work commitments. Good grief, lady. This is an indictment on my leadership style. Talk about the tormentor, Amy. Yeah, so the tormentor, the, the phrase actually, a, a colleague of mine on LinkedIn mentioned, suggested this phrase when I was describing this behavior. Mm-hmm. And they said it's, it's important because they're meant to be a mentor, but instead they're tormenting you. So this is someone who you, you know, is more senior than you. Maybe you share an identity factor with, and you think they're going to be watching out for you, but the, instead they're just constantly undermining and even questioning and maybe even putting your career at risk. It's one of the hardest to deal with. Um, and I, th- that's why I say it's one of, it's my least favorite. You know, again, some of the tactics that work with an insecure manager work here, right? You want to, if you can, if you can stomach it, align yourself with this person, figure out what they um, care about. How can you help them achieve what what's important to them? Working side by side with them also might encourage their empathy. So the more they can see you as a human um, with thoughts and ideas and, and you know, goals, the more likely they're going to treat you fairly. Now, that's not always the case. But if you can align yourself on a shared goal, that can be really important. What we know from research is that a lot of this sort of tormenting behavior is often uh, fueled by what's called social identity threat. So let's take, for example, if it's a woman mistreating a younger woman coming up, that that senior woman may feel like being associated with women in a a male-dominated industry, for example, will lessen the view, her view, view of her in others' eyes. So uh, you want to be careful that you don't, you know, signal that you're a threat, that there's only a few spots for women here and I'm going to take one of them, right? You want to make sure that they understand that you're not there to unseat them or to overshadow them, but that you're there to learn from them and hopefully work alongside them. Well, I think the good news here too is increasingly people have options in the workplace, right? And the need to work for a tormentor are less than perhaps they were even pre-pandemic. Organizations aren't tolerating them as much as they used to, and people have options. Let's accelerate our pace, because I want to finish the final two archetypes and get to the good stuff, which are the principles for getting along with anyone, including Scott. Mm -hmm. The biased coworker. You say um, everyone can make it here hard enough if they just try to do good work. Do you know so-and-so? I get confused by all the different pronouns. I don't see color. When I call something gay, I'm not referring to sexual orientation. Your hair looks different today. Is that your casual look? I might have said that. Um, where mm. are you from? And these are, these actually, these statements, they seem quite boorish. And they are, 
And they don't always come from a deliberately negative place. Sometimes they're conversation starters. Sometimes they're, I'm not good at making relationships. I'm just going to kind of strike up conversation. I'm not trying to license bad behavior at all. But I have seen myself yeah. do some of these when quite, when quite frankly, I didn't know better. Mm-hmm. Or I was just trying to start conversation. Or after I said it, I thought, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I'm not trying to give myself a pass on this. I'm on a learning curve, and I'm better today than I was yesterday. Talk about dealing with what you call the biased coworker. Yeah. I think the important thing to, to recognize is, as you point out, sometimes these behaviors or microaggressions, as we call them, are, are unintentional. But whether you intend them or not, the impact is the same, and they can be incredibly harmful. There's lots of research that shows the true harm that comments like the ones you just listed can cause. Now, to address some of this behavior, you have to decide as the target of it whether you actually want to make that effort. You don't have to, right? Ideally, people who observe the behavior, people who overhear the microaggressions, those who aren't the target of them will speak up. That's really what we want to see is bystanders speaking up when they see these things. If you are the target and you say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to hear that again. I want to, I want to actually speak up about what's going on. You know, one of the things we know, you know, really from a lot of the work of Brene Brown is that shaming someone does not actually encourage behavior change. So you want to avoid calling someone racist, sexist, right? Just really making them feel horrible for what they've said, but you do still want to call attention to it. So one of my favorite tactics is to just ask a question, say, oh, what did you mean by that? Right. And just sort of sit back and wait or um, did you hear what you said? All right. And just, again, in a non-threatening, sort of in very curious way, because sometimes the intention isn't negative. And sometimes when people pause and realize, when the biased coworker pauses and realizes what they've done, they may, you know, think about it twice. You can also use the moment for education, right? Say, you know, saying that really plays into a stereotype around Black people. I don't think that's fair to say. You know, and 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 really, you know, it's not your job to do that, but it is an opportunity for you to speak up about something that will hopefully improve the the work environment for you and for others. Amy, I've joked a lot today to lighten my paranoia, but truly you are so well spoken and well composed. I've learned a lot listening to you today. Let's talk about the last one, the political operator. Fortunately, I have no association with any of the following descriptions. Bragging about their success taking undue credit, currying favor with people in power or those in a position to help their career. Right, guys? Nothing. Acting like they're (laughs) in charge even when they're not. Pushing their own agenda often at the expense of a team or company goals. Hoarding information to appear powerful and purposely undermining you by not inviting you to a meeting or sharing critical details about your work. Um, Clearly, I'm safe from all of those. Talk about the political operator. Yeah. So I think one of the important things is this is someone who cares about their career at all costs. Right. And it's, you know, to be honest, we all play office politics to some degree. But ideally, you want to play good office politics, meaning play in a way that helps uplift others, doesn't require that you trample on them and their and their reputation. So one of the things, if you are faced with a political operator, is to make sure that you're not getting dragged into that unhealthy competition that 
you're not sort of meeting that bad behavior. It's very tempting to fight fire with fire in this case, but you really have to sort of pull yourself out and say, you know, it, just because they are, are you know, pursuing the, their career goals at all costs does not mean I need to do that. You know, at the same time, you need to absolutely make sure that your good work is known because, you know, political operators use credit stealing, lying, right? You have to make sure that others in the organization know your successes, know what you're working on, know what you are um, actually achieving so that the political operator can't sully that in their eyes. And that if they start to do some of these things like steal credit, others are aware of what's going on. You know, especially around credit stealing, I think there's a, some other tactics you can use, like agree at the beginning of a project with a political operator about how you'll ship credit, right? Okay, I'm going to um, let's co-present this to the senior leadership team, or let's make sure we have a slide at the end of the presentation that makes clear who actually participated in this project. So they can't get up in front of the room and say, I did this and I did this and aren't these results great, but that it's clear that others participated. Even better, make sure that slides at the beginning of the presentation so they can't say, oh, I didn't have time to show it, right? Anything that sort of preempts their attempts to, to make it seem as if they we're really the one who did everything can really help sort of dampen that response that that they're you know that you're going to get from others. Amy, your research is extraordinary. The book is a, 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 a must-read manual for anyone working, <laughs> anyone in a relationship. In addition to the eight archetypes, archetypes, and our time is ending, so I want to truncate some of this. You also share nine principles for getting along with anyone. We don't have time for all nine. Will you pick yeah. one or two of those that are perhaps the most ubiquitous that people that are, are in fact dealing with other difficult people or any of the eight archetypes that are kind of universally helpful for them or for that matter, all of us working with just people in general? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick two and I'll, I'll, I'll be quick about them. You know, number one is to watch for your bias. When we label someone difficult or we use any of the archetype labels we just talked about, sometimes it's tempting to slap those on people who don't think or look or, you know, talk the same way we do. And affinity bias is incredibly strong. We're drawn to people who are like us. So be careful that you're not actually applying some of these labels or some of these archetypes to people who just aren't like you. That That's unfair. And, and really question when you're observing behavior that you deem inappropriate or uh, challenging, you know, ask yourself, well, if someone with a different identity was you know, exhibiting those same behaviors, would I have come to the same conclusion around it? So that that's one I think is really important. The other is to really experiment. I've, I've listed a ton of tactics here. Um, you've chimed in with a few that I think that are, are really helpful as well. And I think the, the, the key is that there's no five-step process to getting your passive-aggressive peer to be less passive-aggressive. Instead, there are tactics that you can try, experiment with, you know, put on that scientist mindset and see what works and what doesn't, and then tweak your approach and try a few other tactics. Like there's, there's really, you know, lots of ways in which this could play out. And as in, you know, humans, we're messy in our interactions. So you're going to have to just sort of try some out, see what works, what doesn't, change it up, and then keep trying. And that's really, that's the mindset that that both in my experience works, but it also helps you to avoid feeling so incredibly frustrated in the process 
of trying to figure this out. It helps you build interpersonal resilience so you feel less stress when you're trying to repair or improve your relationship with these folks. Amy Gallo, it's been absolutely horrifying to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us and exposing me once and for all. Your book is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. Thanks for joining us today. You obviously know this stuff well. I imagine you're being held to a high standard with all of your colleagues at Harvard Business Review because you've written a seminal book on this topic. So the standard is higher for you than it is for me. Thank goodness. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, speak for yourself. And we'll see you back here <laughs> next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.